come the furthest or the farthest to be here. Thought at first it might have been Dick Canada from Fort Gibson, Oklahoma, but I think it may be Betty Spate's parents from Indianapolis, Indiana, and we're glad to have them with us. And if you're further than that, hold up your hand. If you came further than Indianapolis, I want to see you. We're glad you're here. Gary and I were just visiting about how thrilled we were with the response to this meeting. It's been fabulous. I mean, I've been thrilled with not only your atten attention, but your attendance. And I'm grateful to God for that. It really does me good to know that we're still interested in the things of God. We're trying to find peace. That's the main thing, isn't it? We're trying to find peace. We're trying to find joy that's in Christ, the blessed assurance that enables us to sing and be happy and gives us what our invitation song will be talking about, what a fellowship. You know, when I think about the fellowship of the saints, I can't help but smile. In spite of all that we aren't, we're still a bunch, aren't we? I mean, and I think sometimes we spend so much time thinking about what we aren't, we forget the bunch we are. I mean, God has had a great work in my life. How about you? I mean, and I am basically pleased with his work in my life. Now, I'm not pleased with my work sometimes, but I'm basically pleased with his work in my life. And that's why I chose as sort of the text around which we center everything we say this weekend, Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation unto all men has appeared. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify us unto himself a people for his own possession, a people that are his very own, eager to do that which is good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. You know, the first time you read Titus, you are amazed at the depth of the wickedness of Crete. I mean, the very first time I read that epistle, I thought, surely here there can be no strong Christians because here are people that the best thing that can be said of them by one of their very own poets is Cretan or all Cretans are always liars, idle gluttons. This testimony is true. They didn't have a very good character. They were, in days gone by, rebellious, mere talkers, deceivers, false teachers. They practiced dishonest gain. They were liars, lazy gluttons. They were detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. As you read about that, you, you get a depth of sin that you say, these people will never be able to be children of God. And yet, the more I read the Bible, the more I know those are the very people that God sent his son to die for. And that that's the very background and that is the very fertile soil that the gospel always finds its quickest, deepest, most continual, and most beautiful response. He went to Corinth. Wicked people. Many of the Corinthians hearing believed were baptized. He just got away from Athens. Moral, intelligent, philosophical, and a few people believed. And so sometimes I think that our intelligence is one of our great enemies. 
or maybe not, if not our intelligence, at least our education. I think sometimes we're educated beyond our intelligence, and that may be, that may be the difficulty of the thing. I'm not talking about higher education. I'm talking about the inability to deal with it. I'm talking about that we do not really have the inability, we don't really have the ability to deal with life. And I am more and more becoming more and more persuaded it's because we're trying to take control rather than become under control. We're trying to rather, we're trying rather to be in control of our lives rather than yielding and surrendering. And that's the message of the chapter or the paragraph that we just read. The way that I'm going to be able to do what's good eager to do what's good is if I have surrendered absolutely and totally my will and my ability into the sovereignty of God. For except a seed fall on the ground and die, it abides by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus said in John chapter 12, we've talked about the saving grace of God. We did that when? Friday night. We talked about the fact that God snatches us from the prison to the palace that he lifts us from the shackles of sin to the sanctity of his arms. That's God's grace. He doesn't just erase sin. He doesn't just remove sin. But he makes us his sons and daughters to whom he will never again impute sin. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will never reckon sin. Sure, he'll discipline us. Well, when you discipline your children, you didn't write on the board the sin that they've committed. It was the discipline that took care of the sin. Not really. You only disciplined to try to get them to live a better life. It was your love for them, your mercy toward them, and your kindness toward them that forgave the sin before the discipline was ever administered. The discipline was simply administered because you wanted them to know the right way and to shun the wrong way. And so we studied this morning that the grace of God instructs. It disciplines us. It teaches us. It teaches us how to say no. Dr. Lowell Johnson shared with me, and I don't think he's here tonight. He told me he wasn't going to be. If he is, he's wrong. he was wrong this morning. He told me that he heard a fellow talk about sexually transmitted sins the other day. And he says, this fellow said that the greatest oral antiseptic is a firm no. No, prophylactic is a firm no. That's the greatest oral hindrance of any sin is the word no. When met with sin, don't say, well, I'll think about it. Don't say, well, I'll debate whether or not I ought to do it. Have already determined that you're going to say a firm no even if you don't want to. Because most of the time you probably don't want to. Because sin's a lot of fun. Sin is attractive. Sin is alluring. Sin is everything that human nature wants and nothing that divine nature can stand. And so if I'm being recreated into the divine nature of God, then even when I want to, when everything in me cries out for the satisfaction that this lust and sin can actually give for the moment, then even though I want it and desire it more than anything in all the world at that moment except the smile of my father then I'll be able to say no right and I will say it firmly with several exclamation points after it so that the devil knows there is no argument to that no he'll be back but he knows on that occasion there's nothing more he can do and because the grace of God teaches me to say no it also teaches me how to live 
I live morally, but that's really not what he says. That's involved in what he says. I live with self under control, not self in control. To be self-controlled is not to be in control, but it is to be under control. It is you that needs controlling. And that's why self is controlling. I am controlled by the Lord Jesus Christ, or I receive the grace of God in vain. And I live upright, which means according to the rules. And I live godly, which means like God. I imitate God. I've never seen God. I don't know what God is like, but I've seen Jesus, and I know that he's like God. No man has seen God. No man has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has brought out his meaning. Now, if you were not here, I just brought you up to date. If you've been here, we just reviewed Friday night and this morning. But as great as it is that the grace of God saves, and as beautiful it is, as it is that it instructs, I think I'm more grateful that it inspires. And there's only one thing I'm more grateful for than it inspires, and that is that it empowers. And I'm so grateful for that, I'm going to preach on that tomorrow morning and tomorrow night. But the grace of God inspires me. It turns me on. Does it turn you on? I mean, the grace of God just gets under my skin and gives me goosebumps and the chillies. I mean, I, I just get cold and warm all over at the same time. I get jumping up and down inside of me. If I get a little excited tonight and my tongue, my tongue covers my eye tooth and I can't see what I'm saying and my voice runs ahead of my brain, it's because I'm excited. I'm not lying to you. Because I've been thinking about the inspiring ability of the grace of God all today and in spite of all the interruptions and in spite of not getting done what I wanted to get done, in spite of not fulfilling all of the promises that I made, I'm turned on because God loves me. I found that out again today. I've known it all my, all my life probably, but I found it out again today in searching the book for the passages that say the grace of God inspires me. God's desperately in love with me. And if you're not, you're making a mistake because God doesn't make any and he loves me. And if you don't love yourself, you're making a mistake. Hear me? If you don't love yourself, you're making a mistake because God loves you and he doesn't make any. And so there's something about you from his point of view that is very, very lovable. Somebody says, no, it's all in him. I used to say that too, but I don't believe that. I believe God found in you something lovable. He found in you something worth loving, or it would be unrighteous for him to love it. He doesn't love wickedness. He hates wickedness. And therefore, he found something residing within you when you were ungodly and lost, before you ever lived. There was something in you worth loving. I am tired of our destroying our God image of being the lovable people of God. I find you lovable, and I'm not nearly as smart as God. And so there are bound to be lots of things lovable about you, and that turns me on. It turns me on that the grace of God inspires me to the point that Paul says I am eager to do what is good, and I am afresh and anew today. More so than I was last night. I am eager. I'm sitting on pins and needles. I'm ready to go and do that which is good. And I'm inspired to get that kind of activity done. Matter of fact, Paul thought so much of it that he brings it up again in verse 8 of chapter 3. 
He says, this is a trustworthy saying. I want to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. To be devoted to is to be inspired, isn't it? When you're devoted to something, it's because that thing has done more than impress you. It has turned you on. And he thinks so much of it, he says it again in verse 14. He says, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. He says, be devoted to doing what is good. And how do you get there? Do you get there because you're frightened of the consequences of not doing good? For 1,500 years, the, jo the Jews show that fright will not enable you to continually do what is good. And one of the finest guys that ever lived by that principle, Saul of Tarsus, said, I find that in me, in myself, dwells absolutely no good thing. For the will to do good is present in me, but to do that which is good is not present in me. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me out of the body of this death? And then he just shouts, thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So with the mind, I serve the law of God, but with the body, I serve the law of sin. But now, so he wasn't talking about now just then. He says, but now there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ made me free from the law of sin and death. What the law couldn't do, that is, make me righteous, for what the law couldn't do in that it was weak through my flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. If what the law required, sinlessness, might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Somebody quoted that last night. I'll probably quote again tomorrow. It's good. I mean, it deals with the fact of what we're trying to discuss this weekend. And that is that the grace of God does save me. It does instruct me. But it inspires me. It turns me on. I love the book of Romans. Is that news to anybody? I love the book of Romans. I particularly love his conclusions, his therefores. You'll find them in 3 and in 5 and in 6 and in 8 and then the last one in 12. And the last one in 12 is where Paul says, now I'm turned on. He says, I want to tell you how much the grace of God has inspired me, and I want to inspire you likewise. In chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore, brethren, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. What was the basis of his appeal? What does Paul say has turned him on? What should turn them on to the point that they offer their bodies, that they lay their entire selves down on the altar of God's sacrifice, that they become not a suicide, but a sacrifice. And there is a deliverance. There is a difference. One is because I am brought there. The other is because I come there. I am not driven there by any guilt complex. I'm not led to lay my life down upon the altar of sacrifice by some fear. He says, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God. Chapter 12, 1 of Romans. If I spoke too fast, you didn't know where I was. In chapter 12, I'm excited. In chapter 12, 1 of Romans, he says, by the mercies of God. America, the uh, uh, NIV here says mercy. It's wrong. 
American standard is right. By the mercies of God. By God's abundant bestowal upon you of mercy. When you get mercy, you have gotten more than you deserve. When you get grace, you get what you never could deserve. And there's not that much difference. The mercies of God are parallel to His grace. It is by His grace that all of these acts, all of these gifts, all of these things of mercy come upon me. And because they have, I ought to be inspired to lay my body down as a living sacrifice. Somebody says, well, I did that when I was baptized. God bless you. Evidently, the Romans hadn't. Because they'd already been baptized. They already knew what that meant. That meant that they had died to sin. I get the idea they probably did, but they needed to keep on doing it. I get the idea that this is not a one-time presentation because he tells them back in chapter 6, are you ignorant that when you were baptized, you died? That's a sacrifice, isn't it? You were buried and you were raised. And so he's saying, continually put what you are, not what you have, put what you are, what you have gets there. He said, put what you are on the altar of God's sacrifice. Sacrifice. I need to be inspired. I need a reason to do that. I need a basis upon which I can continually have my way destroyed and God's way built. I need to get out of the, I need a way to get off of the treadmill that, that we're on as long as we're trying to do the thing the world's way. Are you running faster and getting nowhere? That's because the devil keeps turning up the treadmill. Happens, doesn't it? We get busy. I was talking to a preacher just the other day, an elder, excuse me, who's also a preacher, not in this congregation. He said, you know, I'm so busy doing church work, I don't have any time to talk to people anymore about the Lord. He said, I am busy every morning and every night with church work. I found myself on that treadmill. Have you? Have you found yourself on the treadmill of I've got 16 hours a day in order to just try to get this business to exist? Well, maybe if we spend less time trying to get it to exist and ourselves exist, for God, the business wouldn't have that much trouble. I've been old, I've been young, David said, and now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. And the reason for that is they were on the altar. Elijah came out of two and a half years being fed by ravens and watered by a brook to lay his body down on an altar on the top of Carmel. And God sent fire out of heaven as soon as the prophet got on the altar. Sometimes we won't fire on empty altars. But until we are on the altar of self-sacrifice, the fire will not come from heaven. God will bless us individually and he'll bless us congregationally as soon as grace gets us on the altar. As soon as we die to sin, self, and society and climb there, we will get off of that altar the new creature that provides for God the means to get his work done on this earth. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may, or as this version says, then you will be able, that you may be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. If I had to list questions that are asked me, I think the one that would be at the very top is how do I know God's will for me? I believe I'm asked that more than any other question 
in all of the brotherhood, even more than what do you believe about marriage and divorce or what do you think about crossroads. I think the number one question of all that I'm asked is the important question, the only important question, the essentially important question. How can I know God's will for me? Get on the altar. Isn't that the answer? In the ant that's the answer the man gives. Let the grace of God inspire me to not worry about my place, my position, my purpose in the, in the, in the world. Only thing I want to know is what is God's will for me at this hour? And I could give you a lot of things that I've read in different books on how you could get there. You know, one guy started it all with Eve. You know, another guy had different ways of saying, here's how you find out your giftedness. I am not even worried about finding out my giftedness. I'm just worried about being on the altar. If I can be on the altar, God will take care of my giftedness and God will take care of my purpose. And when, my, and when I hear something, I will know it's God's will or not. There will be a little bell that rings to say this is the will of God. I'll say, yeah, it sounds like that's God's will. I think I'll do that. And how will I know that's God's will? I'm on the altar. That's what the grace of God inspires me to do, present my body. Get on the altar. But the grace of God also inspires me to use my giftedness. That's verses 3 to 8 of chapter 12. He said, don't you know you're a member of the body? If you forgot that, function as a member of the body. If you've got the gift of giving, do that cheerfully. And if you've got the gift of showing mercy with cheerfulness, get after it. And if you've got the gift of exhorting, exhort. If you've got the gift of prophesying, prophesy. If you've got the gift of serving, serve. If you've got the gift of encouraging, encourage. How do you know if you've got a gift? Well, you're on the altar and you start doing it. And fellow people on the altar said, mm, that feels good. That really helps me. Then you know you're doing what they need. You say, ouch, I would suggest you try something else. That's probably, that's probably not what you ought to be doing. If we are surrendered people, we're not interested in fulfilling a self-chosen and a self-imposed ministry. We are interested in hearing the brother or the sister say, ah, boy, that's good. Boy, I'd love to hear that in anything in the world. Just to hear a brother or sister in pain say, I'm better now, thank you. That feels good. That's what grace inspires me to do. Grace has, I, I, is so right now, and I pray it will continue to be so the rest of my life. Grace this day has gotten me out of the business of wanting to please myself. And it's got me thinking about not just pleasing God, but pleasing you. Pleasing the brother. Because that's what grace ought to inspire us to do in the using of any gift God gives us because we are altar people. Because we're on the altar. Because we've sacrificed ourselves, God has given us these gifts. But the grace of God also inspires me to be devoted to the body. Not just to use my giftedness, but to be devoted to the body. That's verses 9 through 21 of chapter 12. And he states it in verse 10. Be devoted. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. For any time that I've thrown a rock in your path, I apologize. For any time that an arrow from my quiver penetrated any part of your body, I apologize. And this is serious. My mouth's dry. 
For any time that a dart has inflicted any pain upon you that came from my pocket, I apologize. I want you to know I'm devoted to you. I don't just love you. And, I'm, and this is not just preaching. I want you to know that. If this is preaching, I'm hollering, right? I really want you to know that I'm devoted to you. And I hope you're devoted to me. Because if I'm devoted to you and you're devoted to me, there's no power in all of hell or earth combined that can keep us from doing what God has set out for us to do. Because grace, how are we going to get there? You don't like me and I don't like you. And that happens sometimes, doesn't it, Pat? What are we going to do about that? Well, we're going to keep on being devoted to each other. We're going to get on the altar. And from the altar, it looks different. It really does. I mean, the whole world looks different from the altar. And I'm going to have to keep in my mind constantly aware, an awareness, a constant awareness that God loves me, that God has engifted me, that God has given me his grace, that God has devoted himself to me, Calvary worth. God got on the altar, didn't he? Why did he get on the altar? Because he loves you. I'm glad he loves me too, but he loves you. I don't understand that. I do not understand that, but I'm not going to get paralysis from analysis. I don't even understand why my wife loves me, why my grandchildren love me. I think I know why Jennifer loved me this afternoon. She wanted to go to the movie with me, with the others, and she cried when, when I put her down. It made me feel good because that means she likes me to some degree. And I like to be liked. Don't you, Doc? We like to be liked. What's going to impel us to like the unlikable? What impelled God to like the unlikable? His grace. The grace of God inspires me to be devoted to the body. It inspires me to submit to authority. I'm not going to spend any time on that, but that's 13, 1 to 7. Paul's talking about what grace inspires him to do. Put his body on the altar. Use his giftedness. Be devoted to the body. Submit to authorities. Sometimes it's hard to drive 55, isn't it? Sometimes it's hard to be honest with all of the loopholes that they've given you on income tax. Sometimes it's hard to really be a submissive person to a government that you don't necessarily appreciate and the laws that you disagree to. What's going to enable you to do that, Grace? Your response to grace. Grace will inspire us to obey all of Nero's rules. And that's who was on the throne when Paul wrote that enable us to pay the taxes to keep Nero on the throne. So we will obey and we will pay. Why? Because we're afraid of the authority? Maybe at first that's the reason why. But he says, not for fear only, but also for conscience' sake, in verse 5. Because of conscience. What does conscience have to do with it? Or oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to. You see, my relationship to government is not determined by my birth, but by my rebirth. My new birth determines my relationship to this government. I'm a sojourner here now. I'm not a native-born citizen. I'm an alien and a foreigner here. But I am to obey every single ordinance, whether it be from the king as supreme or from the governor as sent by him. Peter said in his first book, and in doing so, I become an example to ungodly people that can't even obey though they're native born. 
I mean, they are native born to this land and they find no ability to obey. I'm a stranger and a sojourner and a foreigner and a pilgrim and I'm obeying. Why? Because Jesus died for me and God loves me and he's engifted me and he's empowered me and that inspires me, that turns me on to be a good citizen of the nation. The grace of God inspires me to love my neighbor. That's chapter 13, 8 to the end. The neighbor here is the outsider. I am to love my neighbor. I, you give me any commandment, Paul says. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. Any commandment. Go outside the 10 to the 413 or the 600, however you want to count them. And any one of them or all of them put together are summed up in a single sentence. What's the bottom line? Love your neighbor like you love yourself. Love doesn't do any harm to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. We don't harm our neighbor. We don't plot against our neighbor. We don't cheat our neighbor. We don't lie to our neighbor. We don't steal from our neighbor. We don't covet from our neighbor. Why? Because there's a hell that waits people to do that. Is there a hell that waits people to do that? Yeah. But that's not why we don't do that. We don't do that because we're already doing something that keeps us from doing that. If you're going north, you can't go south. And if you're getting bigger, you're not getting smaller. And if you're loving God, you're not, if you're loving your neighbor, you're not harming your neighbor. That's how simple it is. Why are you not harming your neighbor? Because you know about the grace of God. Because the grace of God has inspired you. It has made you eager to do what's good. And what's good? Loving your neighbor. That's real good. Feels good. Does good. Is good. Isn't it? That's what's right. And what's going to get me there? I love God. Well, maybe that'll get me there occasionally. God loves me. That'll keep me there. The love of Christ compels me. We thus judge. One died for all and therefore all died. With apology to my wife because she never likes to be mentioned in a sermon. It is not my love for her that keeps me faithful to her. It is her love for me. The fact she loves me, in spite of all the warts and all the wrongs I've done her, and all the things that I've done to shame her, she still loves me. That's a mystery, but I'm not going to get paralysis from analysis. I'm just going to enjoy it. And that's the way I feel about God. It is not my love for Him that impels and compels and drives me. It is His love for me, the fact that He loves me. It's grace that made me a debtor, not my obedience. The grace of God inspires me to bear with and for the weaker brother. That's chapter 14, 1 to 15, 13. That's what the love of God and the grace of God impels me to do. That's good. That's what's good. I'm eager to do that because that's good. Feels good, is good, does good. To love my weaker brother to the point that I bear with him and I bear for him. Bear with him is in 14 and bear for him is in 15. It says accept your brother. It says, accept him who is faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Boy, I like that translation. How do you know a thing is disputable? It's been under dispute a while. And that's how you tell it. Isn't, isn't somebody, well, that doesn't make any, that's, that's, simp, that's simplistic. Y'all know, that's why it's right. You can't tell a thing is disputable 
except for the fact that good brothers for donkey's years have disputed it and not settled it. I mean, when brothers have argued and disputed for years and years on a thing, I don't care what you believe on it, I'm going to hug you. I'm going to accept you. Somebody, yeah, but there's a right way. I know it. As soon as we find out it, we'll find out what it is. We'll both believe it. Somebody says, well, my way's right. For who? There are disputable matters, brothers and sisters, and if we're not aware of that, there is no way we can properly respond to the grace of God. There is no way that we can properly respond to the weaker brother. I don't know if Barb has ever heard me say this or not, but when we were in Florida going to school, back when the crust of the earth had just begun to cool, we, we, went, we went to attend a movie. It was Alexander the Great with Ed, Edmund Purdenham. Good movie. Excellent movie. A friend of mine from Gladewater, Texas, saw me the next day on the campus of Florida Christian College and said, I saw you come out of the movie last night. I said, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd recommend a good movie. He said, don't you know that going to movies are sinful? I said, no, I didn't know that. He said, really are. I said, well, did it bother you? He said, it really bothered me. I said, okay, then I won't go anymore because if it's going to cause you to stumble, I wouldn't do it at all. He said, not going to cause me to stumble. I said, okay, then I'm the weaker brother. You have to bear with me and not to argue about my opinion. You see, the position of the weaker brother is really the comfortable position, isn't it? Because he has to be born with. He has to be put up with. His way has to be tolerated. He has to be accepted and hugged and loved, although he doesn't dot his eye every place you do and doesn't cross his teeth every place you do. That doesn't unbrother him. Boy, we need to know that in the brotherhood today. We'll save a lot of money in ink and paper as soon as we learn that. A lot of, a lot of money in Gaviscon. We won't be eating much, much of that anymore. We'll save a lot of money in doctor's bills and, and maybe even electricity. We may not even watch all those things that we're trying to bury ourselves in in TV because we will be peaceful within us and we'll be able to put up with ourselves because of the fact that we realize that we don't have to be right tonight. We can go to bed wrong. Matter of fact, all of us are, aren't we? I really, I firmly believe everybody here is wrong about different things to varying degrees. And with that knowledge, how do I know that? If that were true, would we need grace? I mean, we wouldn't need to be saved by grace anymore if we had our ducks all in a row. There never will be the day that you've got it all lined up right. There's always going to be a stronger brother that's bearing with your disputable matters. And there will always be a weaker brother that you'll need to be bearing with about his disputable matters. And you can hold a hand up to be pulled up by the stronger brother and you can hold a hand down to bring the weaker brother with you. And at the top is the only brother who's got it all right and he's bringing them up into heaven with him one at a time. Boy, that turns me on. I mean, that really motivates, that jacks me up. That makes me know that God has the ability and will use the ability to bear with all of his weaker brothers. And so will I. Then in chapter 15, well, it's just so much good stuff there. He says in verse 13, don't judge one another. He says in verse 19, do whatever makes for peace and mutual edification. Accept me. Don't judge me. Build me up. Please, I need it. I need acceptance. Without acceptance, I can't live. I need to be loved. I need to be accepted. I need to be forgiven. And that's what grace ought to inspire you to do to me. 
And that's what grace ought to inspire me to do to you, to accept you, verse 1 of chapter 14. It's to stop passing judgment on you, verse 13 of chapter 14. Uh, to, to build you up, verse 19 of chapter 13, and then to bear your failings. The NIV mistranslates it here again. It says, we who are strong ought to bear with, that's not in the text. We who are strong ought to bear, we ought to carry. We who are strong ought to carry the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Confession time, brothers and sisters. Isn't a lot of what we do self-pleasing? Even when it's religious, singing, preaching, eating supper, attending meetings. Isn't a lot of that self-pleasing? You know how you can tell it is? You come to hear the ones you like and you don't come to hear the ones you don't like. That's how you can tell it's self-pleasing. You see, the way that we need to be in life is that we bear the failings of the weak, even if he happens to be one of the elders or deacon. Or, some, or God forbid, even a preacher. Am I, am I down on the street where you live now and we're no longer talking theological stained glass language? Do you understand what I'm saying? You understand what Paul's trying to tell us here? He's trying to tell us, look in the mirror, there's a problem. He's trying to really tell us that if we've got brothers that are failing, carry them. Reach over and grab hold, and if need be, get them up over your head. Like I saw a picture of Dean English with Larry North up over his head. I don't think he held him there long. <laughs> but with the power of God, if that's a weaker brother, he can hold him there as long as a weaker brother needs to be held there. Because, you see, if I'm ever lifting your failings, then I'm lifting not with my power. And not with my concept. But I've been inspired by the grace of God to lift. And so tomorrow's lesson will show I've been empowered by the grace of God to lift and carry. If I'll be inspired by God's grace to do something, I will be empowered by God's grace to do it. Far beyond anything I could ask or anything that I could imagine. Then he said in verse 5 of chapter 15, be of the same mind. He said, accept it. Now, let me get it over here where I can see it. Accept him. Don't judge him. Build him up. Bear for him. Be of the same mind. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the spirit of unity among yourselves. You don't achieve unity. It's a gift. You don't even achieve the spirit of unity. It is a gift. It comes from God who gives endurance and encouragement, and it comes as you follow Jesus. Just get in line and follow Christ. And the God that gives encouragement and endurance will give you a spirit of unity so that with one heart and one mouth you may glorify the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then. Now he's back to where he started. He ran a circle. He said accept one another. What do you mean by that? Don't judge each other. What do you mean by that? Build each other up. What does he mean by that? Bear for each other. What does he mean by that? Be of the same mind. And when I am not judging you but are building you up and bearing your burden and striving to be of the same mind with you, then I accept you just as Christ Jesus accepted me. How'd he accept me? Let me tell you how he accepted me. He didn't say, Richard, when you get to this level of maturity, I'll love you and accept you. He came down to my ditch. 
There's a parable that tells me that, isn't it? The parable of the Good Samaritan. He got down a ditch with me. He hazarded his own righteousness because he could have sinned. I know he didn't, but he could have because he was tempted. And he was, that means he wanted to do it. He had a desire to do it. And even in his mind contemplated how good it would be to do it. But he didn't do it. He got down in the ditch with me and love lifted me. When I was sinking deep in sin, love lifted me. He accepted me because he wanted to accept sinners. He didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners. So who do I accept? Sinners. Somebody, we all are sinners. I understand that. But I mean bad sinners. That's who I accept. I don't accept their sin. I accept them. Jesus doesn't accept anything that's wrong with me. He doesn't say, that's all right, I'll tolerate that. He doesn't tolerate it, he forgives it. And you don't forgive what you allow. He doesn't allow me a single sin. Not one sin has allowed me. Every sin, thank God for his marvelous grace, has forgiven me. Isn't that good news? And that means that that's the way I can accept you and you can accept me. We can accept one another because Jesus accepted us. And that's what grace inspires me to do. And that's what grace turns me on to do is to accept you. He ends in verse 13 of chapter 15 to a degree. He ends anyway a point. And he says, may the God of hope fill you with great joy and peace as you trust in him, that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice how much credit is given to God there and how little is given to us? Matter of fact, none's given to us. All we do is trust God. If we trust God, then God will fill us with great joy and peace in believing. I came real close when the client asked me, what are you going to preach on? I started to say joy. You find joy missing in your life? I understand it can get bad. I know some of the circumstances some of you brothers and sisters live in and under. I really do. And I don't know if I could bear that or not, but I know I could. You see, standing outside of it, I say, I don't know if I could bear that. But is there a passage that says that every temptation that comes upon me is short of what I can bear? There is, isn't there? And that's the grace of God. And that sort of turns me on. That inspires me to know that if I will just trust God and rely on Him, then He will give me great joy and great hope and great peace in believing and in the power, by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not my faith that brings that joy. It is God's Spirit's power that brings that joy. It is because I believe not the fact of my belief that brings me joy. I don't want to quit. I'm not. One more point, we're through. The grace of God inspires me to minister to you. The grace of God inspires us to minister to each other. That's verse 14. I myself am fully convinced, brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. 
That word instruct in the original language is a very interesting word, and that's proven by the fact that I have 14 translations sitting on my office, on the desk out in my office right now, and they have 14 different translations of that word. It is a very interesting word. One says counsel. Another says confront. Another says exhort. Another one says instruct. Another one says bind up. Another one says heal. And all of that's involved in the word. I mean, every bit of that, it is the helping, healing touch. That's the best way I can get at it. It says, brothers, I understand. I know fully. And I know this about you good brothers and sisters. You got a lot of faults just like I did. But I know this about you good brothers and sisters. You're full of goodness. You really are. And you're complete in knowledge. And because you're full of goodness and complete in knowledge, God has made you competent to have a healing, helping touch. And that's what we need, isn't it? what I need. Lord, I need a touch. David, I need a touch. Frank, I need a touch. Sully, I need a touch. Marinelle, I need a touch. And so do y'all, right? If we're going to be the people of God that are motivated by the grace of God to get the hardest task that's ever been assigned man done, if we're going to fulfill the commission to preach to 4.5 billion people the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, we're going to minister to one another and not do it. And it's not your beauty nor your holiness that turns me on to do that, Abe. It's the grace of God. The grace of God makes me eager to do that which is good. How do you respond to an invitation to a sermon like this? I guess just say, I believe it. I own it. It's mine. And I will be from this day forward a debtor to grace. If you don't intend to do that, don't sing. And everybody that sings says, I intend to allow God into my life to inspire me by his saving, instructing grace to be eager to do that which is good. And if you're hurting in a way that we can help you personally as a body of people gathered here tonight, we beg you to come while we stand and sing.